Hi everyone, welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, and I'm the digital editor of the Horse.com. Tonight, our topic is equine osteoarthritis, which is a huge topic for horse owners, uh, and it's sponsored by Kinetic Technologies. We're joined by our experts, Dr. Lisa Fortier of Cornell University's College of Veterinary Medicine, and Dr. Scott Pierce, who is of Kinetic Technologies and also uh, a partner with Root and Riddle Equine Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome, doctors. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Fortier, uh, you're a board-certified veterinary surgeon, uh, and you run the Fortier Lab at Cornell. What, what's your research specialty there? Uh, thanks for having me tonight, Michelle. Uh, I, I do, on my clinical rotation, I do two days out of the week on equine surgery, and then the other three days I run a laboratory, as you've indicated. And there we look at regenerative medicines, primarily indicated uh, stem cells, platelet-rich plasma and other regenerative therapies as regarded to osteoarthritis and tendonitis. So lots of new and exciting things going on in your lab, I bet, with, with regarding osteoarthritis. Yeah. Um, Dr. Pierce, uh, you're with Kinetic Technologies, but, you, but you're also practicing. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I've been here at Root and Riddle since, geez, 84, I guess, and uh, uh, in ambulatory division and ambulatory practice. Um, currently, my primary role is pu- public and private sales. I work a lot of the two-year-old sales around the country, uh, a lot of the yearling sales in many states, um, and serve a lot of the local yearling farms that prepare yearlings for uh, the yearling sales along with uh, uh, private uh, pre-purchase examinations. Okay. And so we have about an hour Uh, to talk about this really huge topic. We received hundreds of questions, um, as we always do, and we've gone through them and selected uh, ones that that are similar to lots of questions that we got. So listen in. Uh, We may not get to your specific question, but we will likely get to a question that is similar to the one that you asked. You do have the opportunity to send in follow-up questions live uh, during the show. Um, so go ahead and in in the screen in front of you, you can input those as we go along if you have questions for, for the doctors. Uh, but Dr. Fortier, I want to start with you, and I want to ask you, what are what is osteoarthritis? Can you describe it to us? Osteoarthritis is uh, characterized primarily by degeneration of the joint as a whole. So it's the cartilage that is on the end of the bones that... Um, leads that absorbs the concussion of force, but it's also part of the inflammation inside of the joint. So clinically, what you see when you have osteoarthritis is a lameness, a shortness of stride, a soreness on flexion, a reluctance to perform. And that's how it's characterized clinically. It's also characterized differently diagnostically based on x-rays and CT and MRI scans. But clinically, what you see is a lameness in your horse. Okay. Uh, and I have to say that I'm dealing with this with my own horse as well, so I know a lot of people out there who visit thehorse.com are as well. Can you share with us what the difference is between osteoarthritis or OA and other types of arthritis that we might encounter with our horses? Yeah, that's a great question. The Primarily what we see in horses is osteoarthritis. There are other time, types of arthritis um, that we see in 
in cats and dogs and humans, like rheumatoid arthritis, where they're really immune mediated, immune mediated, meaning your body's attacking your own your own tissues. But in horses, we don't rec- really recognize that. So primarily, what you'll see when your doctor says, when your veterinarian says your horse has arthritis or DJD, which means degenerative joint joint disease, or OA, which means osteoarthritis or arthritis, really they're all synonymous for arthritis. We don't really recognize rheumatoid or um, immune-mediated arthritis in the horse. Okay. And so one more question for you, Dr. Fortier. You mentioned uh, seeing some lameness or discomfort in your horse. How else can a horse owner recognize that their horse may be uh, having the onset of osteoarthritis? Right. I think this is really critically important because when you go through a pre-purchase examination or a veterinarian, your doctor takes x-rays of your horse, you'll, you might see bone spurs or other signs of osteoarthritis, but as your doctor should tell you, no, no horse or no person ever read their x-ray. So the, what you really need to know are the clinical signs of arthritis, and that is, as you alluded to earlier, uh, lameness and joint filling. So the, the, the joint capsule will fill up. The horse is more lame. It's less, re, it's less willing to move forward. Um, on a clinical examination, it might be sore to a flexion test as well. But primarily, the biggest sign that you'll notice is lameness and joint filling. And so, Dr. Pierce, I have a question from you that came in from from, uh, Patricia, who is in Illinois. And she has a horse with a ring bone, which is, um, actually, I'll ask you to describe ring bone as you respond to this question. Uh, But she also wants to know what other joints can be affected by osteoarthritis. Okay, thanks. Um, ring bone is essentially the lay term for degenerative arthritis in the pastern joint. And it's a serious situation, which uh, uh, most people that have had this in their horses and know that. It's, a, it's very difficult to treat, especially during the end stage of the disease. Um, other common areas are basically any joint uh, in the horse can be affected by arthritis, but Typically, it's the most common are of the lower limbs. The fetlock, uh, fetlocks are affected. The lay term is oscillates, but uh, fetlocks uh, commonly are affected by arthritis. Your knees are carpitis, um, hocks, bone spavin, and stifles um, used to be known as gonitis. I assume it still is, but uh, stifle arthritis. So those are, your, those are your big four or five, including the ring bone. Okay. And Dr. Pierce, I have another question from you that came in from Melissa in Vermont. And Melissa wants to know, at what age do you typically need to start worrying about OA? And is there anything that you can do as your horse ages to slow onset? Well, that's a good question. I guess, you know, typically the older horses, I suppose, four to five, six year old and older are your most uh, typical age is that uh, you'd see the onset, but that can vary a great deal depending upon the breed of the horse and its use. And also, very important is confirmation. So a poorly conformed horse in certain areas can be more predisposed to an arthritic condition that would affect them earlier. Um, Another thing, too, that uh, we watch for on pre-purchase exams and in young horses are predisposing factors, predisposing radiographic factors um, that are present as a young horse that could lead to uh, predisposition of arthritis later. And and by that, I mean like 
in foals and young horses, sometimes they'll compress their hocks and, and start having degenerative changes at a very young age in their hocks. Um, um, and are and arthritic change in young horses in their hocks and, and spurs in the knees, uh, particularly the lower joint, distal radiocarpal, uh, just a couple examples. So you'll see some telltale signs that could indicate that you might have a problem down the road that are predisposing your horse to it. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Pierce. We have a question that's come in from our live audience. Cindy in Los Angeles wants to know if arthritic hocks could be a sign or cause of a horse tripping or falling behind. Dr. Uh, Fortier, do you have a response to that? Sure, that's a, a very common uh, clinical sign that horses can certainly display their hocks are sore or their back is sore. Um, they will drag their feet behind. So what you'll notice is that they square off their toe and their the front of their feet look very polished. It doesn't necessarily mean they have hock arthritis. Um, some horses are just kind of lazy. It can be that they're in a different footing. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that they have hock arthritis, but it is if the horse has been going the same and been exercised the same and the horse starts dragging its feet differently or the farrier will sometimes notice that the horse is reluctant to pick up their feet, uh, there are reasons to start to investigate hind limb or back lamenesses. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Fortier. We have another question for you. It's from Allison in Florida. And Allison would like to know if during the pre-purchase exam, is there any way that you can find signs of osteoarthritis uh, in an x-ray? Yeah. Hopefully, Allison, you heard some of what Dr. Pierce just said on uh, young horse x-rays. And when you're looking at uh, pre-purchase exams on, on young horses, there's some signs that we don't like to see imbalance and different conformational abnormalities. Um, but there are also some things that uh, you just don't know that are osteoarthritis. So things can look like big bone spurs, especially in the hawk, are very, very difficult to determine if those are osteoarthritis in nature. So there's some that look like big bone spurs on the front inside of the horse's hawk that, at least when I was in veterinary school, we thought they were associated with osteoarthritis um, on x-ray, but those horses were quite sound. So the important thing to remember on a pre-purchase exam is not really only what the x-ray says, but what your horse is telling the examiner and what the horse has told you while you've been riding it uh, before you purchase it. Now, I have a question for you, Dr. Fortier, on that. Are there horses that have different pain tolerances? I think that's a very good question. I, I, I do believe that, and I, like I said very early on in the conversation, no horse or no person ever looked at their x-ray and then, and then performed subsequently to it. So uh, you can't judge a horse's lameness or diagnose a horse's lameness or a person's lameness based on x-ray alone. It has to be all taken into consideration. And certainly some horses, I remember training in Chicago um, at Illinois Equine when I was an intern, and this horse, very famous thoroughbred racehorse named Black Tie Affair, and if you looked at his fetlock x-rays, you'd have thought he was, you know, there's no way this horse could even move, and he was a world champion. <laughs> uh, there's definitely a difference in pain tolerance. Yeah. Dr. Pierce, uh, we have a question for you, and this was a really popular question. This specifically comes in from Sue in the UK, but we've all had those horses where we pick up their foot and there's a little bit of clickiness maybe or creaking. 
Sue specifically has an Appaloosa cross, and she and the horse has what she describes as clicky hips, and that you can hear it click in every stride when she's riding. And she says it sounds a lot like an electric fence clicking. And she wants to know: Does that mean her horse has a way? No, not necessarily. It's funny. It's not funny, but it's, it's interesting. I just had a yearling going through this last sale that every step he'd click, and it was driving everyone crazy. Um, and just to get to answer the question here, that we we did the horse was not lame either. Um, however, it was irritating to 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 hear this horse do this. Um, we we worked this horse up, you know radiographs on, on, on stifles, et cetera, that we could radiograph. Uh, didn't go up to the hip or anything and, and get try, quite that dramatic. But then, you know, ultrasounded the areas and stuff. Never found anything, which we have suspected that we wouldn't. I guess, basically, if the horse is not lame, I don't worry about it too much. Um, I think it's important to have your veterinarian do a good lameness exam um, if you're overly concerned about it. And it, like I said, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have OA. I mean, you'll look, if, you know, rarely is there a joint that's abnormal with this clicking sound. You don't, you don't see it. It's hard to see. And of course, you can't visualize the, the hip, but if you have a hip lameness, you're going to have an obvious, or hip problem, you're going to have an obvious lameness. Um, I think, if anything, it probably could imply some soft tissue component, possibly a, a ligamentous. Uh, 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 motion or ligamentous abnormality of some sort, which I don't think is probably that serious. It's more of a mechanical issue, and I guess that's basically um, my summary on that. Okay. Um, our next question is about supplements, and we received uh, tons of questions about supplements for arthritis. And I'm going to start with Dr. Pearson and see if Dr. Fortier has anything to add. But Betty in Ohio wants to know if there are any oral supplements that can really assist a horse that's already showing signs of osteoarthritis to feel more comfortable. Uh, Dr. Pierce? Yeah, first I'd like to make sure that everyone looks and looks at their their supplements. There's There's an organization out there now called the NASC, and it's the National Animal Supplement Council. Um, make sure that the manufacturer is a member of this organization. And they're really res- the, the only regulatory arm uh, with respect to su- supplements. And um, and I don't know, a regulatory may be too strong, but they, they do to join this organization and to have your have their stamp of the, the uh, approval on your package. You have to go through a lot of different criteria. Um and it's also important to know that supplements are not FDA, uh, are not regulated by the FDA. So the, NS, the NACS reviews labels, claims, their websites, their, their company sales sheets, and even evaluates the products uh, for content to make sure that what you're saying is on the product is indeed in the product. So that's where I would start. Um, even though, you know, there's a, a research in general is lacking. You know, you look for you look for products that are somewhat or some that are better backed by research than others, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. But you know, as far as glucosamine and chondroitin, the evidence is less than perfect. But there's there's no question that some of it's absorbed and and some of it makes it, its way into the joint. It's very controversial about the the, the amount 
glucosamine, for instance, is how much is bioavailable. But, you know, it is it, it has been found to make its way absorbed through the gut into the joint. There have been decent studies lately on on clinical studies on oral HA and green lipid muscle extracts and also uh, out of Colorado State, this uh, avocado soy um, a product. And also there's some interesting, um, which is, I think maybe overlooked a little bit because a lot of people, you know the advantage of omega-3s in fish oil, but uh, there's some interesting omega-3 um, uh, studies on the effect on the uh, inflammatory markers in arthritic horses. So, I mean, there's some good information out there that just everyone needs to do, do their due diligence and, 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 and really research their particular product. Okay. And Dr. Forte, do you have anything to add to that? No, I agree with what Dr. Pierce said. There's so many products out there, and the misconceived notion is that if a company as on the websites that he's described or companies like uh, Nutramax that have done research and um, I'm not supported by Nutramax. I've never done any research for Nutramax, but an ex- a company like that that produces Cosequin that truly whatever you buy today, you'll buy tomorrow, you'll buy next week, you'll buy next month. And that's critically important. And that's because as, he, as Dr. Pierce alluded to, these are not controlled substances. So what you buy today might not be what you buy next month. So you have to purchase something that is um, produced by a company that has enough integrity that you get the same product over and over again. And to some extent, you need to trust your local veterinarian to say what works or what doesn't work. But I also agree with Dr. Pierce, there's some uh, web, there's at least one, if not two, websites that are independent. There's another one called Consumer Lab that will independently test different products. And unlike a lot of areas, this is one area that cost does not equate to efficacy, meaning that the more you spend doesn't mean you're going to get more of the good stuff. In fact, it's sometimes quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a very, it's a very difficult area to navigate. Yeah, interesting. We have a question that's come in from our live audience. It's from Jennifer in Pennsylvania. And I'm going to go ahead and give this over to Dr. Pierce. Jennifer wants to know if DJD or OA can be caused by prior injury to the joint. What's your experience with that, Dr. Pierce? Oh, of course, it's a good question, but of course it can. Trauma, trauma is a common uh, predisposing factor. Um, okay. Anything that creates inflammation of you know, a sprain in a ligament, for instance, or a, a hyperextension injury or, you know, anything like that. Uh, horses commonly step, take a wrong step. Uh, so certainly they can. Okay. So that's obviously an instance of a traumatic injury. But Dr. Fortier, we have a question that came in from a listener in Nevada who wants to know if there's a genetic predisposition for OA. Uh, on top of uh, Dr. Pierce's uh, comment, I would also add that of course, we think that trauma can lead to osteoarthritis, but that osteoarthritis might not be recognized for years later. So when Dr. Pierce was in high school, maybe he played football and had a knee injury, and it didn't start to bother him until now. Um, so we know the time of injury starts this cascade that might not be recognized for a, at least a decade later. Um, so that that's one just one thing to add. And genetic predisposition is very, very clear. There's clear evidence uh, based on some genetic studies in 
mice, which I know are not horses, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but very clear genetic studies on some different mice that are called like super healer mice. For example, if you make a, a, a joint injury, if you make a, a fracture, a, a crack that goes through the joint and into the bone, those, horse, those mice heal totally normally. Some do the super healers heal normally, and the non-super healers get arthritis. And those same super healers, if you take a notch in their ear cartilage, they heal completely normally. Like you can't tell where people took this notch out of their ear. And uh, to extrapolate to a different species, we've shown in mice, uh, in mice of different uh, genetic predispositions that that is also true for other ways to induce osteoarthritis. And in Norway, they have very clear categories of families that are predisposed to arthritis or not. So absolutely, Nevada, that's a great question. And there is a genetic predisposition. We don't know what it is in horses, uh, but there, there certainly is one. Okay, we have a question for Dr. Pierce um, from Bengal in Michigan. And the question is, on average, at what age do we start seeing our osteoarthritis in our horses? And is there a best preventative medicine regime uh, for an athletic horse to prevent or postpone osteoarthritis? Dr. Pierce? Well, we briefly discussed this a few minutes ago, but um, I'd say on the average it probably is five or six, but it it, it can vary depending on the type of horse like we discussed. Uh, I think typically you see a gradual onset, so um, regardless of the use of the horse and, and uh uh, goodness, I mean, we see we see early signs of arthritis in yearlings. It's not uncommon. Um, so it can be different in different different breeds and, and uh, uh, quite a variety. But I'd say overall, it's a little bit later in life. But I think it's important to look for the telltale signs, the early signs um, of what Dr. Fortier described. You know, these early signs of synovial infusion that could be gradual, like the sprained knee into a football player that leads to things down the road because uh, the, the the inflammation, if left unchecked, uh, becomes chronic and either you have inflammatory damage done to the joint. But also this goes along with good horsemanship, good horsemanship and noticing, no different than a good trainer that notices very subtle changes in their horses it could be heat in a tendon, slight swelling in a joint, and then take some ba- basic preventative action, like uh, just that aren't expensive, like uh, icing, cold water. Uh, once, it's a great question. You basically put the fire out before it gets under out of control. Um, you know, as far as the actual treatment, you know, the supplements and this and that. You know, are I think on a minor cases, the um, you know the uh, had luck with the HA glucosamine chondroitin combos, but if you're if you believe in say adequine and penicillin, uh, that they do you know early that they do repair uh, the matrix of, of uh, and help heal and and even maybe there's so much of this stuff that's used prophylactically um, and more severe, you know, uh, uh, initial cases, maybe consult your veterinarian and, and use one of those, whether it's adequine or penicillin. Um, but I think it, the, the most important thing, and, and you can get a lot of miles and a lot of distance uh, out of just basic horsemanship, cold water, support bandaging, uh, 
Anti-inflammatories are important early on. Just basically put the fire out and get it under control so that you don't turn an acute situation into a chronic. And that ice can be an inexpensive way to to manage our horses for sure, right, Dr. Pierce? Oh, yeah. It's it's very effective. It's very effective, icing. So we have, uh, we received a lot of questions about children uh, from our audience members. And so I'm going to go to Dr. Pierce first and see if Dr. Fortier has anything to add. But Lisa, who is in Massachusetts, wanted to know what the what benefits are being seen in using children's for osteoarthritis. And maybe if you could describe a little bit about what that is for, for people who aren't familiar with it. The children? Mm-hmm. Okay. First, I'd have to say that I don't really use much. I don't use it. Um, and that may be shocking to some, but it's, I just don't use it. And I'll, I'll get on to some of my thoughts about that, and then Dr. Fortier can uh, maybe give her an opinion too. But its primary effect, it's a bone, kind of a bone drug, but its primary effect appears to be a pain relief. Um, <clears throat> I know a lot of veterinarians use it, and... Um, will tell you that he, I'll tell you some of my reservations about it. It's basically there was a study back in 2010 in EVJ and this is kind of a little bit of a problem I have with it, but for it was a bone spavin study that was used lameness grades from 1 to 10 and the and over 60 day period and it did show that the treated horses uh, were improved um, over the placebo horses, but the the grading was only less than one point. For instance, the, the average score, I believe, was 2.6 lameness score in the treated horses and 3.3 in the placebo, so it's not a huge difference. I suppose that was statistically significant, but that's not a huge difference in, in the lameness score. Um, one concern I have is, and this is as, uh, you know, I talked to some of my colleagues in surgery, but we're really not sure sure about the long-term side effects. Um, in related drugs used in people, they're starting to see some serious side effects, uh, not with children per se, but in, in, in the family of these type of drugs. Children, it, it, its method of activity, it inhibits osteoclasts. Those are bone cells that that remodel, they're responsible for uh, degrading or getting rid of uh, basically devitalized bone. And so it's, it inhibits these osteoclastic, this osteoclastic activity. These osteoclasts are needed for normal bone remodeling and for healing. So that's inhibited. And what, what's concerning, it, I guess, is that, you know, our surgeons can look at a, a fracture repair particularly like a condylar fracture, and they can tell which ones were treated with children because of the way they heal or actually don't heal. So I guess my question is due to the expense, et cetera, of the, of the drug, um, and I might add it's not FDA approved in this country, um, but so my question is if the primary effect is pain relief and it's very expensive, I'm not sure why you just don't use butane save a lot of money. Okay, and Dr. Fortier, do you have anything to add? 
<laughs> I, I love uh, Dr. Pierce's comments. I didn't know his position on Tilden prior to this, um, so I have nothing positive to add. Uh, and I'm sorry about that uh, for Lisa in uh, Massachusetts. So I, I agree with Dr. Pierce and all the very, very concerning effects of Tilden. It doesn't seem to do anything in the horse that's positive except relief pain, which we know we can achieve as Dr. Pierce alluded to, a final dutazone. So I'm not sure why you go through this expense. Um, we do know that it is causing other colic and other issues in in horses that similar that are seen in ER rooms in, in human beings as well. Um, so I, I just don't really see... There, there's one very soft uh, study that says the horses improve, but it doesn't show any clinical signs of improvement. Now people are giving this intravenously, for regional limb perfusion to try and decrease the dose and and therefore decrease the cost, um, but there's really there's really no indication that it's actually doing anything for the actual disease process, uh, other than relieving pain, which we know we can do very effectively with phenylbutazone, banamine, ferrocoxib, pick pick any of them, uh, which are at, at equally as efficacious as tildren in relieving pain. So it's not addressing. It's definitely not addressing to any level that we can see in treating osteoarthritis or laminitis or or navicular disease. It might be improving clinical signs, but it's not actually addressing the symptoms. Okay. Well, Dr. Fortier, I have a question for you from Caroline, who joins us from the United Kingdom. And she is asking if in order to identify OA after an initial diagnosis, is an MRI scan necessary? And is it the most suited diagnostic technique? That's a great question. So I think um, Dr. Pierce and I talked about this a little bit earlier too. Uh, MRI, because it seems to be like, oh, let's just go get an MRI or get a CT scan or get a bone scan. But, but really, you need to know where the region of the lameness is. So to go and get an MRI scan, you need to know very specifically where the region is, meaning you need to know is it below the fetlock, is it below the pastern level, is it below the knee. Um, so you need to know very specifically where you're going to go look because an MRI takes a long time. And without knowing, there's anatomic variances and there's differences in how a horse is performing. Um, so an MRI is not the best way presently to diagnose osteoarthritis. You're probably better off with your uh, basic clinical examination, phys- a really good physical examination of somebody watching your horse go in hand, watching your horse go after flexion, palpating your horse for you know clin- basic clinical signs of joint effusion and blocking the horse specifically into the joint. And radiograph, high-quality radiographs at that point would probably be the best way you can do- diagnose osteoarthritis. You should not, in that very, some, uh, very limited case of osteoarthritis, have to resort to an MRI scan. Okay. Uh, Dr. Pierce, we received lots of questions about keeping horses comfortable long-term. Uh, these two questions that I'm about to put in front of you come from Allison, Michigan, and uh, Mila in Montana. 
Alice's question is about her 22-year-old pleasure gelding who has arthritis on his hocks. They've been doing joint injections for several years, but the last time it didn't seem to help him very much. So her vet has reevaluated with full x-rays and shown that this disease has progressed in the horse, but the vet has advised against retirement. Uh, wanting to keep the horse moving. She's using a good joint supplement, she says. she's has the horse on Adequan intermuscular injections and Butte when it's needed. She's still worried about her horse being uncomfortable. Is there anything else that she can be doing for this horse? And is what she's doing beneficial? Well, I was looking at uh, listening to the question and saying she's all over it. It looks like Alice is covering the bases here, you know, with the a good joint supplement, adequine, uh, butte is needed. Per, I mean, exactly what I would, what I would uh, want to do. And I, I tend to agree with her vet too. That her veterinarian here that um, not to re- necessarily retire, but possibly limit the use of the horse or limit the amount of forced exercise. It could be a situation where you back down on that. But I think it's it's very important, and you see so many problems if you just lock these horses like this up in a stall or you think you're doing some good by keeping them up. It's it's so important to keep them turned out, even though you may need a smaller paddock or a smaller situation. But it's so important to keep them going out and keep them moving. Um, I would wonder, and probably one of the reasons here is what the veterinarian's made his opinion, she, the horse probably improves, the lameness probably improves after the horse warms up after riding it, which is probably the case. Um, I wonder, you know, and, and I, I would be interested in not necessarily in what Dr. Fortier would have to, we, and some horses have become refractory to these injections. I mean, some people tend to jump to IRAP. I don't know if there's any, and that's expensive though too, but is there any reports of that being used in hawks? Not to my knowledge. Dr. Fortier, do you have a response to that? I agree with you, Dr. Pierce. I think the most important thing for these older horses is to keep them moving. Uh, I I think you see, especially in the older horse that needs more and more nutrition, that they're brought in for the whole night so they have isolated access to their own hay and grain source so they're not competing with other horses. Um, But I, I personally think that's the worst thing you can do for them. They have to be moving constantly to keep those joints going. The worst thing you can do, even though you think it's the best thing to, I'm doing the best thing for my horse, I put it in a box, I'm putting this nice warm fuzzy blanket on it during the winter uh, and giving him all this rest. But these horses really need to be moving. Think about what they do in nature. They move constantly foraging. Uh, so you can, if you don't have that luxury, and I know it's not available everywhere, then you can start looking into other methods to keep them moving, keep them supple, Adequan, IRAP, platelet-rich plasma, have lots of things that can keep them going. But the most important things I personally think are to keep them moving, keep them light, so don't have an obese horse, and to keep their feet trimmed at a very regular interval. I mean, those are basic fundamentals of horse care that none of these other fancy treatments are going to get past if you ignore those. Okay. Um, Our next question is for Dr. Fortier, and it's from Rose in New York, and Rose wants to know, how do you know if injections, joint injections, are the best way to go with a horse uh, who has bad or stiff hocks? 
Do you have a response to that? To keep it going? Is that what Rose mm, is asking? Keep, yeah, to keep her horse performing. How, how do you know when it's time to start using injections, maybe, then, rather than some of the other methods? Uh, Rose, I think that's a really great question. So one of the things I teach my veterinary students is if you inject a horse's hocks or a fetlock or a stifle with steroids, they're going to get a steroid euphoria. They're going to get kind of high on the steroids for probably 10 days to a week because they're, the steroids are released and it makes them feel great. Um, so a, a very common way to know if your horse needs these steroids is to say, my horse had his hocks and he went really great for two weeks, and then it, it didn't work, so it needs to be re-injected. But what I'm saying is that that doesn't mean that the hocks or the where, wherever your horse is injected, that's not the site of your horse's lameness. Your horse just got a little high, for a better word, um, on the steroids. Um, so there's no really great way to know if your horse needs them other than to try it or to try other supplements or to try other physical rehabilitation methods. So let them go long and low, ride them and collect them only when necessary, turn them out as much as possible. Um, so there's no real way to know other than to try them and, and keep a very detailed calendar. One of the common things I see at the university is what I would call a weekend or a, a vacation warrior. So the, the student owns the horse, but they're busy all during the week, so they never ride the horse Monday through Friday, and all of a sudden Saturday they go out and ride at gangbusters. So it's really important to keep that very clear calendar to know that the horse did nothing from Monday through Friday and then ran really hard on Thursday and Friday or, or practiced really hard. Um, and, and when the shoes were done, what the diet change was, what the turnout practice was, all those things are critically important in order to answer your question, how do you know if injections are necessary? Okay. And we have a question that just came in from the live audience. Peggy in Texas is asking uh, another question about injections. Dr. Pierce, I'm going to toss this over to you. Peggy is saying that, that she has a horse that was diagnosed with OA in her front ankle several years ago. The horse is lame on and off most of the time. She's tried different supplements, uh, HA injections in the ankle, Adequan Legend, uh, topical pain treatments, etc. At what point does Peggy give up on these treatments and just work to make her horse comfortable? Well, the first I'd say just make sure that there's not something else underlying that you are treating a primary fetlock abnormality. There's not a foot issue or something else ongoing. So a good, you know, pinpoint the actual causal lameness to the fetlock and make sure there's not a foot issue going on, but beyond that, you know, you've tried a lot of a lot of different things. Um, the, these are these are situations where you you know I get with my client and you get the radiographs in front of you and you start looking at at at, at your possible options here. And you've tried many many different treatments. You 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 maybe start looking at some of these. Um, more exotic uh, type of treatments like IRAP, et cetera. Um, if you get to the, con if you use the conventional methods, and the, you know you, you, you're not seeing results. Um, but uh, I guess that's where I would go. Make sure it's indeed the fetlocks, which I'm probably sure it is. But it, 
it, uh, it just makes sure it's not something else. Um, and beyond that, then good supportive care after use after use of the horse, for instance, uh, if you ride him, or even if he's had an active uh, day in a paddock, you can see their little off icy ankles, cold water, support bandages, anti-inflammatories, very inexpensive, very practical ways to handle these. Uh, and then I'd encourage, really, with the with the list that you just with, that you just gave me, that you get with your veterinarian and devise some sort of plan uh, of, of, of your alternatives. And Dr. Pierce, you mentioned and have mentioned using ice uh, several times now. And so I'm wondering, how long should I put ice on my horse after he's worked? Is, do you have a protocol that you recommend for your clients? Oh, usually, horses tolerate differently, but they, you know, usually 20 minutes or so. 15, okay. 20 minutes is usually adequate. Okay. Uh, Dr. 48, Dr. Pierce has mentioned IRAP a couple times, and we have a question from Alice in Virginia, and Alice would like you to please explain what the IRAP procedure is. This is a great question. My guess is Alice uh, knows somebody who has an autoimmune disease because IRAP was originally developed in people for rheumatoid arthritis, uh, and that's pure IRAP. Uh, what we use in the horse is not pure IRAP. What we use in the horse is autologous condition serum. So the procedure, which is what Allison is looking for, is you take whole blood from the horse and you incubate it with these special glass beads. And they really are special glass beads and they're etched in a certain configuration. So the whole blood taken from your horse's vein gets incubated with the beads overnight. So for 20, 12, 18 hours. And then from there, you har- you spin it down and harvest the serum um, component of it. And what the glass beads are supposed to do is increase this IRAP interleukin-1 receptor antagonist protein. Uh, and it, it does happen. That does happen. Uh, but again, this is this is designed for a rheumatoid arthritis where there's a lot of interleukin-1, and therefore you want to inhibit interleukin-1 and that may or may not be what's happening in osteoarthritis in horses. Either way, it seems to help horses with osteoarthritis uh, because there's a lot of other components in serum, which is the non-red blood cell component of your blood. So if you, if you took a blood sample from any of us and took out the red blood cells, the other half is comprised of a lot of, a lot of nutritional components. Um, so a lot of those are getting reimplanted into your horse. So uh, again, my when reading Alice's question, I'm, I'm intrigued that she must know about because she writes in there about an autoimmune component. Um, so in horses, that's not really how we think it's working, but we do think IRAP is working through other mechanisms in horses. So again, the basic premise is that your horse comes in, harvest your horse's blood, has to be incubated overnight. And then you generate multiple drug doses that can be frozen and administered at, at two-week intervals uh, subsequent to the isolation procedure. Okay. We have a question, and I'm going to give this to Dr. Pierce. You, Dr. Pierce, a lot of us who have horses with osteoarthritis are treating them on a budget or have a budget in mind for the different treatment options that, that we're using. We have a question from Lynn in New Jersey, and Lynn wants to know how effective Adequan IM injections are in her horse every three weeks 
with no other supplements or treatment. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, if you look at the la- the, re- the label recommendations of it, it's uh, it's recommendation is seven injections four days apart. So that should be one indication that probably every three weeks is going to be um, minimal. Um, you know, Adequine is not typically used as uh, for synovitis. It's mo- mostly for um, uh, cartilage repair, cartilage maintenance type thing. That's the way it was originally studied with that OA model, that osteoarthritis model that Colorado State's done so many studies with where they actually create a surgical, surgically create a, uh, OA in a joint and then follow up to them along with various different treatments. But um, I, I don't think probably it's doing a whole lot of good. You'd probably be better off with getting a good supplement and going every day than uh, than doing that. Um, Adequine's class of like penicillin is classified as a modifying osteoarthritic drug, meaning it actually if it, it actually affects the cartilage, especially intraarticularly, but it affects the cartilage itself beneficially. There was a study that showed that IM, uh, the usage of that wasn't highly effective, and then I was reading some of McElroy's material the other day and just said that some unpublished work showed that uh, that the injections were working uh, better, If and I think that's probably why Adequine changed their dosage recommendation based off that, I would think. I'm not certain that they went to every four days with the seven series injections. A large part of the, the adequine usage now is prophylactic. I'd say a good part of, uh, and whether it is, it's hard to say, and it's very hard to prove and very hard to know if, if it truly would be prophylactic because um, there's been no scientific papers or anything that would suggest or even study this, and it's, even if you would want to study it, it would be very difficult. Okay. And we have a question for Dr. Fortier from Timo in Finland. And Timo would like to know uh, if you have any advice or information about using stem cell therapy for OA. We have an additional question related to stem cell therapy from Garvey, who is in Maryland, wondering what the difference is between platelet therapy and stem cell therapy. Uh, Dr. Fortier, can you kill two birds with one stone on those questions? Sure. Sure. These are commonly asked questions. I'll weave back in IRAP, which is the previous question, uh, because they're all patient-derived biologics, and they're very confusing. Uh, So of the blood-derived or stem cell or bone marrow-derived, you have uh, stem cells. So from from, from the horse's own blood, as we talked about earlier, you can then incubate it overnight with the glass beads and generate IRAP or um, autologous condition serum. You can also take that horse's blood and spin it down immediately patient side and concentrate the horse's platelets, which the platelets store your horse's own growth factors. So the idea there is that if I see your specific horse and I diagnose a tendon disease, I can take 10 mils of your horse's blood, spin it down in three minutes, isolate the platelets, which contain growth factors, and put them back into the site of injury immediately. So that's the advantage of platelet-rich plasma over both stem cells and IRAP, is that I can treat it at the time of injury. In contrast, if you had IRAP, I have to incubate it overnight, which is fine. I could send it to your veterinarian. 
um, or you could stay overnight or come back the next day. Uh, but that's kind of the same for stem cells. They have to be, in most cases, isolated. Uh, some cases you can, uh, some cases you can uh, buy them off the shelf. So the difference between platelet therapy is that you're aiming to deliver a lot of growth factors, and stem cells. The idea for stem cells presently, how people are thinking about stem cells, is that they don't really turn into that cell. Uh, to repair the tissue. So what I mean is if I put stem cells into your horse's tendon, I don't really think they're going to turn into tendon cells and, and generate new tendon, but that they're going to help heal that environment, meaning they're going to recruit stem cells in the local environment. Those stem cells are going to also uh, create more growth factors, and, and, and that's how they're going to increase, uh, increase healing. I personally think all three of them work, meaning platelet therapy, stem cells, and IRAP or, or autologous condition serum. Um, the problem really is that we don't know which one is best in which situation because there's no comparison of saying, well, Dr. Pierce treated 300 this way and Fortier treated 300 the other way. Um, there's no direct comparison of these three, what I would call regenerative therapies, in a head-to-head comparison. So you'll, you'll, it's very confusing, and you'll get very different opinions on who thinks what works. My personal opinion is that all of them are working. We just don't know which one is the best. You mentioned it's confusing, but it's also exciting to, to watch how that's coming along. And that's something that you're looking at in, in your laboratory, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Pierce, we have a question from Micheline in Alberta, Canada. And the question is about legend. Her horse is getting legend, and she wants to know what exactly it is and how it's helping her horse. Do you have okay. any? Um, well, legend is is a uh, is a, a kind of a middle ranged hyaluronic acid, hyaluronic, um, molecular weight range. Um, it's not you know, the high, really high molecular weights are get usually used in the joint. This is a middle range, you know, four hundred to five, six hundred thousand Dalton size, which is middle range. Really, they're not sure. I'm not sure, and I don't think anyone is really sure on how, how IV hyaluronic acid works. If you think about HA in general in the bloodstream, um, the half-life of HA in, in your bodies is two days or less. Um, in a joint, I think it's around three to four days. So, you can see that um, the effect is not long-term. I think it's primarily primarily used when synovitis is present. You just have an inflamed joint. Um, I think other things that one can do is, like Dr. Fortier mentioned, alluded to, is trimming is so important in these diseased horses. Um, and it's, it's very much overlooked. Um, and also, in my experience, that if legend is working uh, in the work that I've done, uh, that oral HA would usually is also helpful to the horse. HA safe, you know, hyaluronic acid is very safe. That's what's nice about things like this. They're natural, basically natural alternatives. They're very safe, uh, natural with no really known side effects. So that's one great thing about it. Okay. 
And we are right about at 10 minutes left. Um, we're going to try to get through as many of our remaining questions as possible. If you're listening live, uh, now is the time to send your questions in in a flurry. If we haven't gotten to your specific question, go ahead and send those in and we'll see if we can get to them. Uh, in the meantime, Dr. Fortier, uh, we have a question that came in from Fawn in Illinois asking, about the use of Prevacox in horses versus Equiox. Uh, can you explain a little bit to us what those drugs are or that drug is and, and what it's doing for our horses and why your horse would get Prevacox versus Equiox? It's a really, really common and a super great question. So the important thing to know is that both of those drugs that are uh, trade names, Prevacox and Equiox, contain the same ingredient. They both contain ferrocoxib. So the only really difference is Equiox is marketed and approved by the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, for use in horses. Prevacox is marketed for the use in dogs. But again, let me be clear that both of those contain the exact same component, and that is ferrocoxib. So... Uh, Personally, is it okay to use ferrocoxib in your... Why do people want to use ferrocoxib when Equiox is available? Well, it's, it's money. So presently for the same dose per horse, prevacoxib costs about five times what it costs to give your horse Equiox, even though it's the same agent carrying the same compound, absorb the same, reaches the same plasma levels. So... The, the real, both of them you need a veterinary prescription to obtain for your horse. So you as a veterinary owner are probably not at a huge risk um, administering these to your horse because your veterinarian is the one who has to write out the prescription. So your veterinarian is putting his or her neck on the line to prescribe Prevacox for your horse because it's not approved. So the FDA could theoretically come after your veterinarian to say, you can't prescribe Prevacox for a horse. It's not approved. Okay. My personal opinion is that FDA has bigger fish to fry than finding somebody who's giving the equivalent drug. But the other, I just want to touch on two other important things to think about when you're thinking about Ferrocoxib to give to your horse, whether you're giving Prevacox or Equiox. There, there are at least four studies that show that this drug, ferrocoxib, again, whether you give it in Prevacox or Equiox, is no better than Butte for relieving pain. It doesn't matter who gave it, Ohio State, uh, Orsini did it at UPenn. There's, there's, at least, there's a lot of studies that say it's no better than Butte for relieving pain. There's also no studies that show that it is less ulcerogenic. It's theoretically better. Absolutely, it's theoretically better. But there's at least a 1% uh, adverse reaction to Equiox in horses. They get oral ulcers. They get hives. Uh, nobody knows, has really studied that in detail in Butte. Uh, but, but don't be fooled into thinking that this is a very safe drug in your horse. 1% of your horses are going to get savage oral ulcers or break out in hives. Uh, so it's not, it's not a no drug should be considered safe, and I don't really know that this drug is safer than Butte. It's certainly not more effective. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Fortier. We have a question that came in from Paula from the, our live audience, and uh, she is asking about 
uh, osteoarthritis in that creates back pain. We've talked a lot about hocks and knees and ankles. Uh, Dr. Pierce, what's your experience with managing osteoarthritis in a horse's spine? Um, I don't know. I treat so many younger type horses. I don't, I, Dr. 48, do you have any input here? I don't treat a lot of back pain in horses. That's a, great, a really good question. I was actually looking looking forward to your question, your answer to it. Uh, I typically, what I say is I ignore back pain until I'm sure that there's not something that's causing it. I, I, I do believe, I clearly see horses with back pain, but I think it's a result most of the time, I think it's a result of hawk, stifle, ankle, some other sort of issue causing the horse to use their longissimus, the muscles that support their spine to really pull up and get off of a lame leg. So if I palpate a horse's back, sacroiliac is different, but spine arthritis, if I palpate down a horse's back and they're really sensitive to palpation or a, a owner that says, well, I saddle him up and he hates it or he bucks me off as soon as I get on to him. I really think that horse's back sore. I, I always assume that horse's back sore because of something else until proven otherwise. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, I, and- could just add, I could just add one quick thing. This, this, I agree with that 100%. In fact, I had one that a client came to me and it was a show horse and they said, uh, uh, so-and-so wanted to inject its back. And I said, why don't you check its hocks out first? And I'd, I'd never seen the horse, and then, lo and behold, she had a lameness exam, and sore in its hocks, and injected its hocks, and it sound his back up there. Okay. Yeah, we so, see it every day. <laughs> yeah. So we are getting down to just the last couple minutes here. So I'm going to try to throw some of these out to you guys uh, rapid fire style <laughs> so okay. so that we can cover. So let's see see how it goes. Um, Dr. Pierce, I'm going to toss this one to you. Um, it's a live question from, um, let's see, from Deborah, who wants to know if it's possible to overdose an older horse on glucosamine. Her horse is getting glucosamine feed and an additional joint supplement um, and is also getting an Adequan injection. Is she overdoing it? Um, I, I think glucosamine technically is very safe. Uh, it, it's, it's bioavailability is questionable in the horse. So I don't, I, I don't think that it's as, as readily absorbed in horses as it is in people. Um, so it probably takes a lot more in a horse than a person would take, relatively speaking. Uh, you know, anything can be, you know, can be dangerous in, in, you know, even water can be dangerous in too much, in, in <laughs> excessive amounts. So, you know, you, you have to be careful and, and stay with the recommended amounts. And, and of course, then, you know, add a coin on top of it, that's perfectly okay. Okay. I have a question for Dr. Forty. Actually, we have a couple of questions. Um, one was from Becky and one in Kentucky and one from Patsy in Nevada. Uh, both are wondering how much butte is enough or too much to manage horses with osteoarthritis pain. Well, those are really great questions. So I would suggest that there is no minimum or maximum. I think we're all individually sensitive. So what you should do is keep cutting back. So same with ferrocoxib, uh, any drug, you should start with a recommended amount, load them for two days. So phenylbutazone, average horse gets a gram in the morning and a gram at night, cut them back to a gram once a day, cut them back to a gram once every other day, cut them back to a half a gram, cut them back to a quarter of a gram. Uh, 
and and you might see residual results because they build up enough level in their body and their kidneys and it's all protein bound so it takes a while especially in older horses it takes a while to clear um, so there's no clear cut uh, you know again I go back to keeping a calendar and keep it very clearly on how the horse is being ridden what is being fed how it's being uh, medicated and, and you'll figure it out for your own individual horse just like you and I are individually sensitive to these medications Okay. Dr. Fortier, another quick question from Janice in Maine. It's cold up there. She's wondering if her horse should be in either heated barn or blanketed to help with uh, his arthritis. Do you have any suggestions on that? Well, I find that kind of funny because I grew up in North Dakota. (laughs) Also cold. (laughs) Yes. My horse is, uh, yes, zero was a balmy day. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't, uh, the horse, the horse, like a duck in the in the water, has these very adaptive principles. So, if your horse, if your if if your horse grows a decent hair coat, you do not need a blanket. If you took a horse off the track, and they need to decompensate and regrow a hair growth, and they're already very very lean, that's a different story. But if your horse grows a dif- decent hair coat, your horse doesn't need a blanket. It doesn't need leg leg warmers. Uh, it needs shelter. It needs shelter from the wind and from the rain, and it needs decent nutrition, but it, it doesn't need a blanket, and it will not affect your horse's arthritis. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Fortier. We, unfortunately, are to the end of our time tonight, and we could just keep going because there's so many great questions from everyone, but we've also covered some really great information. I want to go ahead, since we were just talking about cold water and or cold weather, and let everyone know who's listening that uh, next month's Ask the Vet Live will be on winter horse care. So if you're interested in that topic, please join us uh, again in November, uh, and we'll be sending out the date for that that very soon from the horse.com. I I want to finish up with you both and just ask you to summarize what your advice is to people who are managing osteoarthritis in their horses. Uh, Dr. Fortier, can we start with you? Sure. I think the majority of the questions that we've gotten tonight um, are in middle age to older horses. And I think we shouldn't forget the very basics. I think you shouldn't forget to keep them light but not skinny. I think you need to move them around a lot. We've talked a lot tonight about, or at least, to uh, decent shoeing and trimming um, and just really keeping them moving. And, and no horse really needs a whole lot of grain. Uh, just keep the horse moving a lot and, and don't forget the basics. And I agree with Dr. Pierce 100%, the easy fundamental supplements of ice. <laughs> you don't really probably need a lot of these fancy supplements. Okay. And Dr. Pierce, your well, final yeah. thoughts? Yeah, I would um, ditto a lot of those uh, comments. And, but basically, um, I think early detection and any problems paramount that uh, you, you the, the earlier you find conditions, the better off you'll be and the, the more longevity uh, and uh, you'll get from your, from your horse. Um, supplements are, are okay. Talk to your veterinarian. Look at research. Do your due diligence. Uh, Google's a wonderful thing. Uh, and you can get a lot of information. It gets confusing, but uh, I think you can muddle through the, the ones that are researched and the ones that aren't. And then, obviously, um, use your veterinarian to, to uh, discover 
some underlying problems that so many times are there and unbeknownst to everyone they are a good lameness exam will will undercover these things okay well thank you so much i want to thank everyone who's listening live for joining us tonight um and thank you to both dr fortier and dr pierce for answering these questions really some great information that we've covered tonight uh, I want to also thank Kinetic for sponsoring this so that it's live for our audience or free for our live audience and free for the archive that's coming up online. If you'd like to listen to this audio again, it will be archived on thehorse.com. You can look for it in about 24 hours. Um, and we have thousands of articles on thehorse.com that you can search through and videos and other resources to help you better care for your horses if you have additional questions. Thank you to everyone again and good night.